morning we are starting uh, 1 Corinthians, which will take us up to Christmas and a little bit after Christmas. So before I've got a couple of weeks off in December, we'll get to the end of all of the controversial bits. Um, I didn't want to split that over the break. I wanted to finish that all in, in its entirety. Uh, then we'll finish chapters 15 and 16 in January. So let us come before the Lord in prayer as we look to this word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who made himself known, a God who takes no delight in the death of the wicked, the God who is by nature a saviour. Lord, we thank you that in the scriptures we don't just see all the highlights of all of the people who did everything right. You show us the depths of the depravity that even exists amongst your people at times. Lord, we pray that as we spend time through in the book of 1 Corinthians this year, that, Lord, we would know something more of your grace and your mercy, something more of the centrality of the gospel, the importance of the unity of the saints, and the importance of order in your church. So that we pray for our time together that you would be ministering to us through your word and that we would respond with humble, obedient hearts to your message to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have ever belonged to a group who've lost their way. Now, sort of the early days, everyone's on board, they're all on the same page, you're working together well, you've got a really strong team, until all of a sudden you've got a few individuals who start to go their own way. And then before long, those few individuals become a few small groups going off in another direction. It's no longer a strong team, rather it's falling apart. What was built upon good foundations has become undone very quickly. If you've read through 1 Corinthians, and if you haven't done so recently, I'd encourage you to, to take some time to read it through from start to finish again. You probably ask the question of how did they get so bad so quickly? We see them as a church who's lost sight of who they are. They've lost sight of how it is that they became into a relationship with Christ and what they have in Christ and what is their purpose as his children. I've summarised this series as 1 Corinthians, the centrality of Christ, the unity of the saints and order in the church because they are themes which come up over and over again throughout this book. But as we always do before we start a new book, we ask some of the questions, things that help us understand the content of the book. Questions like, who wrote it? Who were they writing to? When did they write? What was the situation? Is there anything that was prompting them to write this particular letter? And so our author is Paul, pretty obvious. You see it there in the opening verse as well as six other times throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. 
All of the early church fathers, as they refer to this book, describe it as being written by uh, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who planted and established this church, which you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Now, the people he's writing to is the church in Corinth. Even though Paul began his ministry in the synagogue, as was the nature of his ministry, and he started that place, it was predominantly Gentile Christians. As Paul established the church, he also stayed there and ministered there for 18 months. Corinth was a culturally diverse place. It sat on a 10-kilometre-wide parcel of land. You see there with the label there, with a little slow bit of land in between two significant trade ports. You see, they've discovered that little narrow area there next to where it says Corinth. They've discovered it is so much easier to unload boats, take them off on the rail across from one side to the other, put them on another boat than it was to bring a boat all of the way around. And because it was such a significant trade port, it was culturally diverse, it was ethnically diverse, it was religiously diverse. Now what you see there on that picture there on the right-hand side, that's not how it was at the time, that's, that's a canal that they have since dug through that they can tow and bring boats directly through it rather than having to bring them over on land. But when we're talking about the diversity that existed there in that day, yes, there was a synagogue, but there was also a temple of Aphrodite, complete with a thousand prostitutes serving as part of the religious practices in that temple. The temple of Apollo, the temple of Apicius. It was a diverse group, and you'll see how some of those external influences became an influence on the Corinthian church as well. Now when Paul visited that church and stayed there for 18 months, we're told in Acts chapter 18, that was while Gallio was proconsul, which he started around about 51 AD. So for him to have been there 18 months, he's sent Apollos along, uh, he's had a bit of time, he's now writing from Ephesus. Uh, most would conclude that it's around about 54 or 55 AD in which Paul is writing. And there seem to be two key reasons as to why he's writing beyond just the fact that he planted that church and has a concern for them. The first we read is that there were reports from Chloe's household. So whoever Chloe was either had workers or slaves who were doing something in between Corinth and Ephesus who passed on information to Paul to say, that place is a mess. There's quarrels going on all over the shop there. But also, too, we see in the way in which Paul writes that he's responding to a number of questions that they have asked, and he addresses those throughout the letter. But this morning, we're going to ask, who is Paul and who are the Corinthians? What do you pray for a messy church like this? Why unity matters, and wrapping up with confidence in the cross. Firstly, who is Paul and who are the Corinthians? Now, it's very different than the way we would write a letter. We'd write our letter and then right at the bottom we'd say, from Steve. But when you're writing something on a scroll which has got to be unrolled from the top, it would take a long time to get to that bit. So the normal habit would be you'd start by saying your name and who you are writing to. 
So we have Paul identify himself as Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So in doing so, Paul is reminding them he is an apostle. He is one especially sent and commissioned by Christ. Not by Paul's choosing, but by God's will and God's choosing. Which means that Paul has authority to speak on behalf of Christ. And given some of the things that Paul needs to address in this church, then establishing his authority at the beginning and reminding that his role and his authority was given to him by God will be important to address the issues where he'll need to correct them. Whereas Sosthenes, you get the impression he's not necessarily contributing too much to the content because as Paul writes, he tends to write in first person, I, it's not so much of of we. Potentially Sosthenes is the one who is writing it down, the material that Paul is speaking to him and he's being, being as transcribing it all for them. He's possibly the synagogue ruler that we read about in Acts chapter 18, verse 17. But presumably someone that the Corinthian congregation knew who he was. But when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you get a bit of a feel for who they are and what they were like. The way in which Paul describes them might seem to us a little strange. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Called to be saints. Writing to the the sanctified in Christ Jesus. Do you remember who these people are? These are the ones taking each other to court These are the ones where there's someone there sleeping with his mother or his stepmother and and nobody's doing anything about it. These are the ones treating communion like it's a sizzler buffet, all you can eat, showing no love for one another. They are immoral, unethical and arrogant and proud. He calls them the church or the ecclesia. That Greek word simply means a gathering or an assembly. There's nothing particularly spiritual about the word. In fact, that same word is used to describe those who are writing in Ephesus in Acts chapter chapter 19. But it is important to see that he calls them the gathering of God. In other words, Paul is identifying that the Christian church is the one and only gathering of God's people. Not the Corinthian church in particular, but the Christian church, those who belong to Christ. And then he goes on to make three statements describing what it means to be God's people. Firstly, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those who have been, through his crucifixion and resurrection by repentance and faith, have received the very righteousness of Christ. They are called to be saints. As is, they have been called by God to be set apart for God. Sadly, when you read through the book, you think they don't really look particularly set apart for God or even set apart from the context in which they live in. 
In some places, and particularly in chapter 5, they're being described as being worse as those who live around them. But also, too, that word saints is not the way it gets used in the common vernacular now. Often these days, when somebody calls somebody a saint, they're talking about somebody who is particularly pious, who has done a great list of great good deeds or even some miracles. That the original and the truest meaning of the word is someone who has been set apart by the saving work of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. We've got St. Paul over there, got St. Andrew right there, St. Matthew over there. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are set apart for him. Now Paul is reminding them of who they are. This is who you are. This is what Christ has done. Despite the fact they presently don't look like it, this is their identity. This is who they are to become. But not only are they called to be saints, they are called to be saints together with all who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, this church probably thought they were the bee's knees. We are the most spiritual church of them. We might be the only true church they might have been thinking. But Paul says, you are called to be saints along with all the other Christians around the known world. Not only are they reminded of their belonging to one another, but they belong to a much wider body of Christians. And as the letter unfolds, soon they're going to realise they have little or nothing other to boast in other than what Christ has done in them. But one thing you might have noticed, because we've just recently finished the book of Joel, is remember in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yet when Paul speaks of the definition of the church of God, he says, and those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Joel would have said, call upon the name of Yahweh, Paul appropriately and fittingly can say, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So writing to the Corinthians in Corinth, they are called by God to be set apart for God. And to them, he kind of adapts a common greeting and sort of Christianizes it or gospelizes it by saying grace and peace to you. Reminding them that everything they have, they've received by grace, by the unmerited favour of God. And we'll see in chapters to come that they, they start boasting as though they have achieved things in and of themselves. But not only does Paul wish them grace, but also peace not only because of the peace they now have with God because of the grace that they've received in Christ, but the Hebrew term which they would have commonly used, shalom, didn't just mean the absence of difficulty or trouble. It spoke of a, a, the presence of the fullness of blessing. Is that how you would have started a letter to this church if you were writing it? 
Would you describe them as the, the sanctified in Christ? The saints who are called to be saints along with all the other saints. Or would you have been more tended to write, start with, Dear Corinthians, listen here, scumbags. We've got to have words. Paul focuses not on what they are doing. Paul focuses on what God has done. And he does the same when he prays for them. How do you pray for a messy church? If you were being honest and you were aware of this church, how would you pray for them? Would you be praying that they might repent of their worldly ways, of their arrogance, of their immorality, of their disorder? Because that would describe where they were at, all of the things that they were doing. Yet in verse Paul, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Has he forgotten who he's writing to? He's writing to these ones he's, that we see all the things they're up to. Paul says, I thank God always for you. What on earth could he give thanks for them? You'll notice that his prayer for the Corinthians is different than his prayer for a number of other churches that he writes to. For example, when you see when he writes to the Thessalonians, he praises them for their love and their faith. But when he writes to the Corinthians and he speaks about what he prays, always giving thanks for them, his focus is upon what God has done. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, I give thanks to you because of all the wonderful things you're doing. I give thanks always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. And everything in verses 5 to 9 are sort of like an unpacking of the grace of God that has been given to them. And because Paul knows that they are in Christ, because God knows, Paul knows that they are in Christ called to be saints, despite all of the external things that we and he can see, he's optimistic. Verses 5 to 9 are a wonderful reminder of who they are, a reminder of the riches that they already have because of their relationship with Christ. Now, some people question whether Paul was being sincere when he speaks to them being enriched in every way in all speech and knowledge. Because they're the things that the Corinthians thought so highly of themselves. They thought they, were, they knew everything. They thought they were the masters of wisdom and eloquence. And man, look how much we speak in tongues. Was Paul encouraging them in something that they shouldn't be doing? Regardless of what they were doing and where they were at, Paul says there is something about their lives that validates the testimony that he brought to them. Amongst all of the mess, he can see validation, confirmation that God is at work in them, even amongst all of their failures and all of their mess. 
And because of that, he is absolutely confident that this church that is in utter disarray at this point in time, that God will grow them, he will sustain them, and he will present them blameless in Christ. Is he confident because of the faith that he sees in them? Not even close. He is confident because, verse 9, because God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. His confidence isn't because there's visible signs that they're on a good trajectory. He's confident because God is faithful and he knows that God finishes what he begins. God doesn't write off the slow starters, doesn't write off the misled, doesn't write off the stragglers or the weak. If God has begun a work in them and Paul is convinced he's seen evidence that he has, then he writes confidently that God will sustain them and he will present them blameless before him on that last day. He's called them into fellowship with his son, Jesus. That term fellowship just means to share or participate in something in common with others. It speaks both of our fellowship with Christ, but at the same time, it implies our fellowship with the community of believers who belong to Christ. You can't really separate those two elements. To have fellowship with Christ is to be in fellowship with one another, including the brothers and sisters you may find difficult. To live a Christian life in isolation from other Christians isn't living a Christian life. The idea of it's just Jesus and me is not an idea you'll find in the Bible anywhere. Obvious exceptions being if you're the only Christian in the entire country in which you live, that'll be acceptable. Being in Christ places us into a family of his people. Not just the ones we like, not the one that we agree with every, every single doctrine, but all of them. And Paul gives thanks for this church who are called into fellowship with Jesus Christ and with one another. He's confident that God's not finished. Paul's not given up on the church in Corinth because he knows that God hasn't. I want us to just pause for a moment to think about these words. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, speaks of fellowship and fellowship in a church where things may not be perfect. He says, If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith and difficulty, if on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. 
That's exactly what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He says, you have been enriched in every way. They are not lacking within them all of the things that God can work to to bring his church to maturity. We shouldn't be complaining about the current state. We should be confident and expectant because of the grace of God that has been given to his people. Paul has reminded them they have been called, set apart for God, blessed with all of God's good gifts that they might serve him until the day he returns. And with that foundation, now he can start addressing some of the concerns that are inconsistent with who they are. Starting with unity. Now some people consider verse 10 to be the basis upon which all of the letter expands. Certainly could be said for here up until the end of chapter 4. But it also does apply in a broader sense to across the book as well. Where Paul says, I appeal to you brothers and sisters by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. They've just been told they've been called into fellowship, a common union both with Christ and with one another. Division is the complete opposite of fellowship, is the complete opposite of what they have been called to. So Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, Not just on Paul's authority, but on the full authority by the name which is encompassing of the whole character and person of Jesus Christ. You can see he is pleading with them on behalf of Christ because this is a serious issue. What he's pleading with them is this, that they would agree, or literally the term is they would speak the same thing that there be no divisions amongst them and that they would be united both in mind and judgment. Incidentally, that word translated united means to restore something back to its proper state. We see it both in Mark chapter 1 and in Matthew chapter 4 as being used to describe mending some fishing nets that were broken, bringing them back to the way that they were supposed to be. But what on earth would it mean to speak the same thing? Does that mean every Christian everywhere in the world must agree on every single doctrine and say it exactly the same way? Sadly, I've actually heard people preach on that verse and say this is an abomination to the household of God that not all the churches teach exactly the same thing. Saying that this verse says it is an essential, it's a necessity. But in verse 12, Paul states explicitly the area he's calling for unity in the church. He says, what I mean is this, that each one of you is saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. At the heart of their disunity doesn't even seem to be a theological disagreement 
but more of their attaching themselves or devoting themselves to particular teachers. Paul established the church. Apollos did come later on. He wasn't an enemy of Paul. Paul was happy for him to be there. He encouraged him to be there. Apollos is described in the book of Acts as being someone who was quite eloquent in his speaking. And culturally, knowing how much they loved a good orator, you can see why they probably thought, well, Paul said he came in weakness of speech, but this Apollos, he's impressive. Let's, let's get us associated with him. We don't know whether or not Peter, that Cephas, ever visited. It's not documented anywhere in the scriptures that he did, but possibly he may have. Because it was common in their culture. You would, your value in society was often tied with what speakers or orators you associated yourself with. And they brought this idea into the church where some think, I'm, I'm a great Christian because I'm of Paul. Another one's like, oh yeah, I'm of Apollos. Oh, I'm of Cephas. And would you believe it, some even said, I'm of Christ. People would associate themselves with that teacher as a status symbol. Now, there's no indication that there was even different teachings amongst those teachers. Apollos is described as being someone who accurately knew the things pertaining to Jesus Christ. Paul had sent him to Corinth. It was a good thing. Peter may have had some slight deviations around what is required of Gentile believers, depending on when and what these things took place. But generally speaking, their content would have been very similar. Where their divisions were, were personalities, methodologies. But Paul reminds them, that's not your identity. Your identity is you are the sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, along with all of those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are called into fellowship with Christ. Verse 9. Their identity is Christ. He called you. He sanctified you. He is the one at work in you. He is the one who's, who is sustaining you. He is the one who will present you faultless. All of these teachers, Paul, Apollos, Peter, all they are are people who taught about Jesus. They brought a message that wasn't their own. They brought a message that should have taken people's eyes off them as speakers and pointed them to Jesus. Quarrelling about which teachers they belong to is just plain stupid. And they wouldn't have liked that because they thought they were very, very clever and wise. In fact, that word translated quarrelling, which is the report that is received from Chloe's household, is that they were quarrelling is what Paul lists in Galatians 5 as part of the fruits of a life lived in dependence upon the flesh. They wouldn't have liked that. They considered themselves to be so spiritual. Yet the report about them is that they are quarrelling like fleshly pagans. To highlight the stupidity of what they were doing, Paul gets them to examine themselves and ask them pretty obvious questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptised into the name of Paul? Now, 
they would have no problems answering those questions and the obvious answer to every single one of them is no. Christ is not divided. Paul wasn't crucified for them, nor were they baptised into the name of Paul. Even Jesus taught a kingdom divided against itself will not and cannot stand. Christ is one. His body is one. The church, including the ones we don't like, are one. His body is made up of those trusting in Christ crucified for sin who are baptised into the name singular of the Father, Son and Spirit. But it's possible that in Corinth some of them were thinking who baptised me was a special thing about who I am. Maybe that explains why they were arguing about these different teachers. Maybe that explains why Paul says he's glad that he only baptised a few people. Crispus, who is in Acts 18, a synagogue ruler, also the founder of potato chips, not really. Gaius, who is the host for both Paul and the whole church when he's writing to the church in Rome, when he's in Corinth. And the household of Stephanus, which, if it's the same one, um, in chapter 16 is described as being one of the first converts in Archaea. It's possible that all three of these groups were early converts when Paul was one of the very few Christians in that area. But it also tells us something else about baptism. It doesn't have to be done by the most senior leader in the church. Even Jesus got his disciples to baptise, John chapter 4. In fact, I'd say any mature Christian can baptise a new convert. I mean, after all, the Great Commission says we are to go make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But also, Paul recognised his primary mission wasn't to baptism, but was to preach the gospel. We saw when we went through the book of Mark that Jesus said, when they were bringing out people to be healed, I said, that's not what I've come here for. I have come that I might teach. When we see the nature of the discipleship that he had with his disciples, he just find it in this way. He appointed the twelve whom he also called apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now last week as we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we saw that Paul refused to use manipulative methods in his ministry. Now, to an audience like Corinth, who loved fancy words, eloquent speech, Paul says, I didn't come with eloquent speech. And his answer and his reasoning why is, it would empty the cross of its power. Paul was absolutely convinced, and we should be absolutely convinced, the message of the cross, which is shorthand, the message of the gospel, has inherent power. It does not need you to fancy it up for it to have power. If someone was to come with some eloquent, fancy message and people responded to it, you'd be forced to think, have they responded to the content of the message or the persuasiveness of the speaker. 
One example I think of, and I don't think we need to go this far, Jonathan Edwards intentionally used to preach monotone. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever read one of his sermons called Sinners in the Hands of an, of an Angry God, but if you have, just try and picture that in your head being spoken in complete monotone. Obviously, he was working from the idea that if I do something totally unimpressive in my delivery, anything which comes of it, we can definitely put that down to the content, not its delivery. I don't think we need to go monotone, although it does some benefit to me, who's a little bit insecure about my lack of expressiveness, to know that that's not that important. Nor does it mean that Paul is opposed to a well-crafted message. Rather, our confidence is to be in the message that we bring, not in the method. Which means that it can convey the exact same power through someone who speaks really well, like Samuel, who was very good at putting words together, as through someone very simple who can just put it in very plain language and might stumble over words from time and time again. Christ is one. His body should be one. We are called into fellowship, a oneness both with Christ and with one another. And where there is division in the body... Not only is there misrepresentation of Christ to the world, but as his body we are called to do all things for his glory, that is, for the proclamation of his name and all of his character. And when a church is divided, we do the opposite. We don't do things for the proclamation of his character, we do things for the defamation of his character. That's why it's so important. But Paul and we can have confidence in the cross. Because the church in Corinth, it was, to the eye, a complete and utter mess. The problem wasn't the foundation that Paul laid. The problem wasn't the the ministry of Apollos afterwards. I'd imagine both of them would be utterly shattered by what had happened in that church in the time since they had left. Now, you and I, we rightly have a confidence in Jesus and his gospel to save. But we should also have a confidence in Jesus and his gospel to save, to sanctify, to sustain, and to present his children blameless. The Corinthians were divided, quarrelling, immoral, arrogant, unloving, absolutely nothing in their behaviour gave hope for a better future for that church. Yet when Paul prays for them, he prays and he thanks God for them daily, not because of their actions, not because of their sin, but because of the grace of God shown and given to them in Christ. That even amongst that rabble, They had every good, gracious gift of God needed for their growth and for them to be sustained and presented blameless. So Paul is confident that Jesus will do that. 
despite the fact that on the surface there's nothing showing that it's even moving in that trajectory at this point in time, other than just a basic assurance that, yes, God has begun something amongst them. Now, I don't know where you're at right at this point in time. Maybe when you take stock of where things are at the moment, you might think, there are times in my life, or maybe a lot of times in my life, where to the eye, it doesn't look real Christian right now. Now, we're not looking for excuses to justify ungodly behaviour. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to rejoice that Jesus Christ died to set us free from our sins for us then to go on to continue enjoying them. Like as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the second letter, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died so we might no longer continue to live for ourselves, but for him. The evidence of genuine saving faith has been and always will be that a change takes place. Even amongst all of the chaos of the Corinthian church, he was still able to say that he has seen evidence, confirmation of the testimony that that Paul bore amongst them in the gospel. And if you are in Christ, you can have that same very confidence that Christ has begun a good work within you that he has given you already every spiritual blessing in Christ to grow you, to sustain you, and present you blameless before him in glory. He hasn't lost a single one that he has called so far. In fact, in Romans 8, he says, all he predestined, he called. All he called, he justified, and all he justified, He glorified. So you can be confident that not only has he not lost any so far, he's not going to begin with you either. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what joy it is to be reminded of your gracious good work in your people. Even when the externals are showing complete lack of growth if there is evidence that you have begun something even amongst what looks to be weakness and failure is all of the potential all of the gifts gracious gifts of God to bring that person to maturity to sustain them and present them blameless Lord help us to give thanks for the fellowship of this local body that you have called us into. Those that we naturally get on well with, those that we might find difficult. Help us to remind us of our fellowship with the the broader worldwide body of Christians, some of whom we may disagree with on some points. But Lord, help us to remember the gracious good work that you have done. 
May we pray for you to bring your work to maturity. May we seek it in our own life, knowing that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And as we see you growing your people in your local gatherings around the world, may that never once be attributed to those who lead those gatherings. May it never once be attributed to the people who you are doing a growth within. But may all glory be given to the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, I-